Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Good evening, or whatever the hell time you're listening to this is, and welcome to the XYZ podcast about CNC, automation, robotics, technology, and more. I'm Nick Frank from Frank Brothers Guitar Company, joined by my host, uh, co-host, Aaron Goff of Goff Custom. Thank you. There we go. You're getting the hang of it, buddy, slowly. Thank you. Thank you. Never, never did say you were a quick learner, eh? No, I never put that on my resume. <laughs> How was your week, mate? What have you been up to? Uh, it's been good. Um, I had uh, a bunch of random stuff going on this week. Uh, but that's just the way it is. Sometimes I like that. But like... You're just doing like production work? or you Production like work, but then the I gotta like... Or? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of that. And then I'm like fixing some stuff. Um, <laughs> and getting guitars ready for uh shipping or pickup or delivery mm. um things are weird right now right like we can't have people over to the shop so we got to do like the pickup in the driveway or <laughs> tim drove a guitar to a local customer and dropped it right. off it's like their front doorstep <laughs> right Kick, like hurl it at their door and keep yeah driving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah tried to stuff it through the mailbox a lot <laughs> right. um but yeah no it's it's yeah it's been a good week otherwise for production too so nice yeah you said you had to fix some stuff what are you having to fix oh we have this so uh it's a critical tool it's a thickness sander Mm -hmm. and we use it a lot um i mean we use it we use it every day we are thicknessing like the tops of our guitars um so basically you've got your two pieces of wood you join them together uh to make a wide board and that makes up the top of the guitar we were talking about this before book matching yeah, um, the face of the the face of the guitar, the yeah presentation face, or exactly. So whatever. that once it's glued together, you need to bring that down to a a consistent thickness. Uh, and people often think like maybe you use a planer, but that's too aggressive to use uh, like a, a blade tool. 
Right. So especially either. because you're using like figured woods yeah. on the top, right? So exactly get... things that'll tear it out. Yeah. Different so... grain directions. And that means that a blade would tear it out. Yeah. And then the, the handy thing about thickness sanders, you can choose what grit goes on it. So a thickness sander mm. is basically a planer, but instead of a cutter head, it's a drum that you wrap sandpaper around. Right. So we, we have two, we got another one. We got a second and we've got 120 grit on one. So it's coarse. And right. then 220 on the other. And the new one, basically the way that the, the piece of wood is fed under the drum, the sanding drum, it's a, it's a conveyor. Yeah, uh, it's like a little rubber conveyor belt, right? Yeah, ours isn't rubber. It's, it's actually sandpaper itself. <laughs> oh. Uh, but that just doesn't do any grip, sanding. It's just there for, uh, right. it's just traction. Grip. Right. Uh, anyways, it just, it's been tracking terribly. So it's moves, shifts from one side to the, to the other on, you know, the, the mm. bed, the conveyor bed. And I like Ryan, who was, uh, who's works here is, was sanding and he called me over and he was like, uh, things, something's going weird with this thing. And like the belt had like folded over itself cause it had like <laughs> rubbed into one side of the, right. um, conveyor bed. Anyways, so I spent my morning fixing that. And the, the machine is, it's a decent machine, but the design is so stupid for these sorts of things that like, mm -hmm. if you need to take it apart. So like in order to yeah, access yeah. bolts to adjust the, um, the tracking, you need to basically take apart the bed. Right, which then means you can't like run it and quickly like no so check I, that it's yeah yeah yeah. So what I ended up doing is I took I took apart the bed and the the, the part that's blocking the bolts that you can adjust. I just mm -hmm. I just took it over and I hacksawed a part of it off. So I used my hacksaw. <laughs> nice. If you were following you my, a previous episode, I chirped my hacksaw. Said it as being useless or right? as being useless. Yeah. Aren't you uh, glad you have it? I'm super glad I have it. I need some new blades. <laughs> Anyways, so I futzed with that for a while. Works great now. And then also I was just getting, we've got these dust collectors and we kind of just like hooked up um, the two, the dust collection hose, mm. uh, just hodgepodge just so we could get working and then get some duct tape just, on it. Yeah, actually. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then no, so just, we were making it nicer, work better. So that's what I've been up to that what and, it, and just, you know, building guitars. What? What do these new dust collectors look like? Oh, you said you went with less expensive ones yeah, this time around, like right? classic um, bag. Ba yeah, bag one of them's got a, a canister filter on top, mm. which is is much nicer looking, and it it filters to one or two micron. Right. Whereas, yeah, the bag, the top bag one, uh, you see dust. You see it like it looks almost like smoke. It's a fine particulate coming out the oh, top. I don't know how you can live with that because it's not good that I fine don't, dust is so bad for you it's really bad so the reason we bought it like that i actually ordered it with the canister filters oh, but they were out of it. stock there's just huge shortages right now so yeah. i can i can replace the bags with uh canister filters so we mm -hmm. do plan to do that i want to do that asap all that really i, I like I, I think they should make it illegal to sell bag filters like that because it you know it traps all the big chips but then it actively blows the finest dust oh, into yeah. the air and the fine dust is the stuff that really harms your lungs yeah right? chips so, like, like you're not gonna suck a chip back. <laughs> <laughs> oh i got another chip in my lungs <laughs> yeah yeah exactly no the fine dust is is brutal and you see it like on the floor at the end yeah. of the day yeah. it just like settles 
Um, so dust collection, yeah, and maybe in your paint finishes and stuff, right? Like could be, could be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that has its own sort of. It's got a filter bank uh, that air is being drawn through. Right. Yeah, um, I know you guys have a, a real system for that because otherwise you probably would have had issues yeah. in the past with dust getting into your spray booth. Yeah, I think that's just a problem everybody has. Any doing any sorts of finishing though is just inclusions. Yes, and yeah. it's just one of those things you need to fix. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, great if you could fix it from the source, but also just um, on an individual uh, item basis, whatever. Like yeah. every every instrument we we make, we check for that sort of thing. It's just yeah. one of those things. Well, I know I've talked to you about this in the past, but my knives previously, I used to use a sprayed on coating called Cerakote, which is a, a two part epoxy that you then have to like heat cure. Um, and the thing with that stuff is you don't get to do any post finishing on it. Right. At all. It's one so, and done, right? Yeah. So like, you know, the tiny, and if you do try to make a spot repair, like it's just blindingly obvious right. that they've done it. Right. So like, yeah, any tiny little speck of dust or anything basically meant that the whole thing was ruined and I'd have to like strip Ugh. it and do it again. It was stripping it easy or I'm, I'm guessing no. Yeah, you can just blast it off. Okay. Um, Cause I, you have to, you have to prep the steel surface by sandblasting it before you spray this stuff on. Right. So sandblasting it again isn't really a big deal. And you're not you're not changing any critical tolerances by sandblasting it. No, I mean um, the one thing that it does affect is that the little tiny serial number that I put on my knives. If mm. I have to sandblast a knife more than like twice, the the serial number starts getting pretty hard to read. Right. But it's very very small and, and not very deep which is why that's an issue. But everywhere else, it's totally fine. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, but no no longer an issue, because fuck Cerakote. <laughs> well, honestly, like Cerakote might have been easier to deal with than oh, DLC. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I remember it looked good. It does, And you yeah. did it, you had your own little, like, uh, itty-bitty um, spray booth? Spray booth, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty decent stuff. It's just... When you're using your knife a lot, it's nowhere near wear resistant enough to stay looking new, right? You know, because it's a paint, it does wear off, and so yeah, it's just I don't think it's the ideal coating for a knife. I mean, it's really meant as a firearms coating, and I think for that, it's great. Oh, I didn't know that, um, yeah, because I mean, you know, like a firearm a lot of it's not going to see the same kind of abrasion that a knife would, right? Like when you're when you're cutting whatever you're cutting is actively rubbing against the blade. Right, of course. Um, whereas on a firearm, it's like, you know, some of it's going to get beaten up if you're, you know, doing like serious drills or something. But like, usually people are nicer than that to their firearms. So. Yeah, I don't know, but... Uh, you don't know? No, not really. Well, I, I heard, uh, so I found out the other day, I'm not going to name any names, but I found out that we have a... Um, former jtf2 team member listening to the podcast which is cool sorry my air compressor just uh <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i don't know if you could hear that a former oh, what certainly could former jtf2 team member so canadian special forces oh crazy um, and uh not that long ago i actually got to go out and do a day of shooting with some jtf2 team members that were customers of mine i remember you saying that it was so much fun man. yeah so that's fun. wild um, yeah, like we were shooting at targets out to 750 meters. Holy smokes. Um, and by the end of the day, hitting stuff at like, you know, 250 meters or 400 meters was just so easy. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, crazy that crazy. they're like adjusting for wind and uh, 
yeah. the curve of the earth and shit like that. Yeah, it was, it's not quite that that intense <laughs> at 750 meters. But yeah, are you a flat earther, are... Aaron? Oh, it's it's so flat. There's no gravity doesn't exist. But yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we should probably talk about CNC. We've we've gotten real off off topic. I don't know. That here. was cool though. For I'd like to yeah. know more about that. Um, oh, man, it's so much fun. Like um, like high precision like precision shooting at long ranges is a really interesting kind of art and science oh and, yeah um, and skill firearms yeah and the firearms that they use for this like the, the guns we were shooting um you know were, so there were rifles chambered in the 308 caliber and then between the rifles and the scope uh each gun was probably worth about 10k whoa yeah um, you know, just the scopes themselves are like four, five, six thousand dollars. Yeah, I don't know why scope. that would surprise me. Actually, I mean, like, it seems like a pre- serious precision piece of equipment. Yeah, you're basically building like a precision telescope yeah. that can go on top of a rifle and deal with recoil and dirt and getting dropped and you know, like it's they're pretty crazy bits of kit. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, mm-hmm. I've uh, I've done a little bit of shooting myself. Oh yeah, back in the day, uh, <laughs> boys, my boys summer camp. Oh. Shot some uh, 22s and some 20 gauge shotguns. Did some skeet shooting. Nice. Pretty that fun. wouldn't fly these days, would it? I don't know. I think they might still do it at that camp. That's cool. I, if you yeah, want your I mean, kid to shoot guns at summer camp, here in Ontario. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> That's nice. the place. Actually, it was pretty fun. And they have archery think... at those places, too. Lots, lots of summer camps. Mm. Archery is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry, you were saying something about CNCs. <laughs> well, we well, should probably talk about, about CNC at some point on the show. Oh uh, yeah, whatever. I mean, that'd be cool, I guess. Uh, how was your CNC? Good. I actually did some, um, custom, well, like some one-off like fixture work this week, which was fun. Been, um, making a glue up fixture of all things. So this appeals to me. Yeah. I do a I lot of gluing. Yeah. So, um, Basically, when I first started making my knives, I only really offered like three colors of handle scales. It was like black with orange liners, black with green liners, and black with white liners. And that was it. And gluing up the handle scales is a bit of a process because they have to be laminated really well. You know, you can't have any like um, imperfections in the glue Mm -hmm. showing up around the edges of the lamination once you machine the the scales and stuff, right? It all has to become one. Yeah, exactly. so, you know, previously I've always done it as like a sheet. I would glue up like a sheet of material, you know, like t- 12 inches on a side, 12 inches square. Right. And I'd do a stack of them, separate them with wax paper, clamp them all up, leave them for 24 hours. The problem with that, though, is that, you know, then I would have like a bunch of people order black and orange suddenly. And all I've got is black and green, you know. Right. So I have like overproduction of one particular type of handle scales and like not enough of the other. I can't like do it on demand. And it also means that I, people can't like design their own color combo, you know, because yeah. it would be a bunch of work for me to do all of the possible color combos. Then you'll have a bunch of random pink and green. Exactly. That I can never uh, use for anything else. Scrap. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, basically in working on a process to do this, you know, just in time, like fully, fully lean, as they mm-hmm. would say. Um, so I'm stocking handle scales and colored liners, and then I can assemble them on demand. Uh, and then the next morning, once the glue is set, machine them. Cool. Um, yeah, so I built a fixture that um, lets me uh, stick down a sheet of G10 with double-sided tape on the CNC. And then I'm actually machining the rough blanks. 
Um, so to, I'm thicknessing them, uh, cutting oh. them to 350 thousandths and then cutting them into strips, one and a half inches wide and uh, 11 inches long. And then doing the same with the liners. So everything is a very set size. And then I built um, a fixture out of ultra high molecular weight polyethylene, which is quite a mouthful, mm -hmm. but it's basically like a really slippery plastic, kind of like Teflon. Right. Um, and glue won't stick to it. Right. So I would cut these channels into the, the polyethylene. That's the exact right size for a, uh, a scale and a liner to go in there. And then you, you butter it up with glue, put it in there, and then there are clamps built in. You just little toggle clamps and you just click them down and then leave it overnight, come back the next morning and it's done. That's amazing. And how, so do you just have the one right now? Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm going to build two of them so that I can have six uh, handle scales gluing up at any one time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have just one right now and it, it only does three, but. Pretty good though. Know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. And um, I put the first one in there the other day and I was like, fingers crossed the glue doesn't actually stick to this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, because I'm using, um, I'm switching from epoxy to polyurethane. Oh, really? Adhesive. Polyurethane. Yeah. Yes. Um, basically because... Is that, it's... that's like, a, I mean, Gorilla Glue would be like a name yeah. version of that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And I actually am, I'm just using Gorilla Glue. Oh, okay. Is, it's good stuff. Are you wetting it first? The... Yeah. So basically, um, polyurethane, as you probably know, but other people. Well, don't, I, is... I don't actually, because I've never actually, I've never used polyurethane glue. Okay. Well, so it cures. It it doesn't dry. You know. So like PVA glues right. dry. You, you A know, lack the of water has to get out of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, whereas polyurethanes actually react with atmospheric moisture or moisture in the wood or whatever you're gluing, and then they cure. They like cross-link polymerize. They become a, a permanently solid thing. So they're fully waterproof. Um, it actually has pretty good temperature resistance and everything as well. Um, and yeah, so basically you can just put it on two things and stick them together and leave it. And it, it will cure eventually because there's some amount of moisture on everything. Mm -hmm. But yeah, to, to make it more reliable and to speed it up, you just kind of wipe one piece down and then let it dry. So it'll be visibly dry to the eye, but there's still water on that surface. And then you put glue on the other side and sandwich them together. And so you don't want it sopping wet. No, you don't want it like visibly wet. Interesting. Um, you just want some like residual trace moisture in there to help help cure it. And then it kind of foams up, right? Um, only so basically, it'll foam up because it's producing gas during the reaction. But that only happens when it's unconstrained. So if okay. you put it on like a table, you know, poured a pile of it, put some water on it, it would foam up. Right. But when it's in the joint, it can't foam up because it's it's you know clamped into a thin line, yeah, to a very f fine layer. Yeah, and it, in my tests so far, it, it's like as durable as epoxy is. Wow. Um, I'm going to do some more tests, but basically, I was having to mix up a batch of epoxy every time I wanted to glue up handle scales. You know, and if I'm going to start doing it on like a um, a, a more individual basis, then I'm going to be wasting so much epoxy. Right. Yeah, that's you know, what's cause... annoying about epoxy is you kind of have to know exactly how much you're going to use if you want to be yeah, efficient I... with it. Well, and you need to mix a little bit more always, you know, and then you end up leaving some in, in the mixing cups and on the, the spoons and, the, you know, whatever, like you're uh, using to yeah, apply it. Mix, so. Mixing epoxy, just sitting there looking at the clock for three minutes. <laughs> So yeah, I mean it, that, and you know that kind of what was, what that was what drove me away from wanting to use epoxy. Cool. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, it, it looks very promising so far. I've done a couple of scales and done some testing on them and machined them and everything, and they look great. So. And they did not stick inside the to the UHMWs. <laughs> no, they okay. did not stick to the fixture, which is fantastic. Because we use but... some of that stuff as well, UHMW, for gluing headstock overlays on. Um, mm. Sometimes when we're we do tortoise shell headstock right. overlays, like right. what like sunglass material. And um, we use for that we use cyanoacrylate, mm, super, super, super glue, yeah. Uh, and that it sort of the uh, it's fairly thin. It'll like um, squeeze out and get onto inevitably get onto the UHMW kind of surrounding the whole surface. And where we do have a problem is it won't stick to it. But if you have like unless you have the ability to twist it off. Or like right. knock it off, like it will kind of stick. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You it doesn't. It able... doesn't hang on very well, but it just kind of fills in all the cracks yeah. and scuffs and stuff. And yeah. <laughs> I have had some trouble getting it off, but it is. It, it's one of those miracle materials. Yeah. It's. It seems like really nice stuff, and it. Um. It's not super expensive. So I. The sheet that I used was, um, twelve inches by twelve inches, and then an inch thick. And for McMaster, that was thirty six dollars. Mm-hmm. Um. And it machined nicely. Like I just threw a fresh carbide two flute end mill um, in the milling machine and did everything with that one tool, and it was totally fine. Yeah, nice. Um, and how did you yeah. attach the clamps? Um, yeah, so I I did initially. I was thinking because you're using oh, wait, sorry, sorry the, you're using like destaco clamps, right? Like to- those. Yes, the toggle clamps. Right. Yeah. Um, so I sorry I was I thought you were asking how did I clamp it down and I will say I did originally try to clamp it in a vice on the on the milling machine to machine <laughs> it and it just kind of uh, like yeah, yeah folded squeezed out of the way right, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like a bar so, of soap <laughs> yeah so I ended up having to like clamp it down using a clamping kit onto the table hmm. um, and that worked fine although I did leave some dents from tightening the clamps up a little bit too much right um, yeah and the toggle clamps I actually so. Yeah, as you said, I'm using Distaco or whatever, however it's pronounced, um, toggle clamps again from McMaster. And they're just like I drilled and tapped holes in the okay. UHMW. The, and... the UHMW itself is tapped. Yeah. And that seems to have worked fine. That's, I mean, if, if a lot it of fails. force on those. You yeah, know, I mean, it's like 150 pounds. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I've, there's four uh, socket head cap screws per clamp holding them in place um so you know i but i mean if if it fails then i basically i left myself enough space to put uh threaded inserts Mm -hmm. in if i need to so if if they do fail i'll just chuck it back on the mill um machine out those holes to a larger size put in threaded inserts um and then bolt it down again hope for the best nice yeah well you did send me a photo and it it did look slick so yeah, congratulations. It, thanks, buddy. Yeah, it's it's one of those little things where it's like I've been meaning to do it for probably like a couple of years, <laughs> you know. And mm-hmm. um, it's funny actually. The thing that stopped me from doing it in the past was not actually like gluing up the handle scales. It was like, how do I take orders for this stuff on my website? Oh, like how do I let somebody, you know, just order a custom knife with like whatever colors they want? Um, right. 
and for the longest time I had the idea that it sh there should be like a knife designer on the website that you would like, you know, have little drop downs and you could change the color of the handle. And then in the picture of yeah. the knife, it would change. Yeah. Um, and in the end, I was just like, you know what? That's too complicated for a first pass. I I've done kind of a couple of shots at that and I, I can do it, but it's very complicated mainly because the photography is really, really hard to make. Yeah. That I suppose you could do it. You could do it uh, digitally, but then it just doesn't look the same. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, as it stands, I basically just have like a color palette that people can choose from like mm -hmm. a, an image of a color palette, you know, with all the different colors of G10 and Kydex and stuff. And then people can just put in their choices and the drop downs. And then in the future, I will work toward having it like show you the, the knife as you're, design yeah yeah i mean okay we we have a similar i mean not problem but like you know doing custom which is what we do mm -hmm. some people some people really want to visualize it yeah but yeah. and we've so we've seen other people do these guitar configurators uh they're often yeah. always digital because i think it's so hard to you can't do every combination there's like a million combinations yeah and they're often like two-dimensional right like looking yeah. down from the top it yeah. just doesn't look it looks um wrong <laughs> yes it, yeah. uh it's a super super hard problem to solve so like i have previously done um photography that was consistent enough that i could like overlay yeah, you know, different handle scales on different blades, and that's you know, but, cool. Yeah, but basically, I'm gonna have to do that process again with every possible combination. Not not every possible combination. Sorry, every handle scale photographed in a particular way, yeah. every color of liner photographed in a particular way, and then every type of blade photographed in a particular way, so that I can composite them digitally. Um, you know, so they'll be basically like the handle scale images will just be the handle scale with like a transparent background. And then that'll get overlaid on an image of the knife on the right. website. So um, I, I think it's cool. Here's my, my um, potential like problem with, with it mm -hmm. is it almost gives that person the satisfaction of having ordered that mm. product already before they even, order before it. they even order it. So they, they get that thrill of seeing it. And then maybe it's not as satisfying as they thought it would be because it's just a 2D rendering mm. or a, uh, a photo of it. So, you know, when they, if they were to like then decide, well, I don't actually like it that much. Like it, it, I didn't think that color scheme worked as well. Uh, but if they did buy it without having seen it and then held it, it would look so much better. Mm. Right? Right. So. It, yeah, I mean that's the problem. Like, I, if I'm gonna do it, I really want it to be like photorealistic, right? Like, so then it might like a... it, that that would you know make that less of a problem. But I that can that's my concern with with what we do is like you know giving people that satisfaction of oh well I I saw it now I don't need to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably beating myself up over that. But I think I think so. Yeah, they, I mean like know, still if someone's turned off buying object. guitar, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's it's an interesting problem, and it's it's interesting too that there are like tons of apps out there for Shopify or whatever that let you do that, but they're all not very good. Right. Yeah, um, I think I just think it's something people think they want, but not necessarily actually is as helpful because you lose a bit of creativity, mm. um, or that that uh, 
the spice. Yeah, like you know, the 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 idea in your head come coming to life as opposed to just you know clicking a couple drop downs and it comes to life. Right, right. But you know, if anybody's going to do it well, I'm sure you will. I'm going to give it my best and and slowly. You know, I I was thinking. One of the things I get lulled into often is that like things have to be perfect before I even take the first crack at it. Right. You know, I, you know, oh, I want to make it so you can see exactly what you're looking at, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, yeah, that's great. But like, if that stops me from giving my customers that option now, then that's stupid. You know, so like what I've done that is what in the software world, we call that the MVP, minimum viable product. Right. Right. So like I've given them the drop downs. I gave them a couple of example photos of other people that have done the same things with knives. Mm -hmm. And then I've got like a palette that shows you all the possible colors for each part. And then you just choose, you know, yeah. like in it for the first iteration, that's totally good enough. That's great. Yeah. So, I like that. I mean, I think that that would encourage me to be creative. Mm, to go through and like try out different things yeah imagine in your head what it would look like and totally yeah totally i mean our customers come so we often get this question is what's something you've never done before or mm, and that's I, what they want yeah totally right so to see it in advance then it's not ne never been done and then it hasn't right. never been done right well and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to do this is because you know when i first started making these knives i had like four you know there's like four unique knives and then i started adding more and more handle color combos and you know so previously before i rolled this option out it was like 14 different oh no 20 28 different combinations wow yeah, but yeah. now it's like seven thousand. yeah and it's funny how that compounds yeah yeah so quickly it's like there's a burger restaurant uh over by um i don't know it's like close to union station mm. in toronto and they claim to have like 11,000 different variations of <laughs> the same hamburger. But which one do I get? <laughs> yeah. 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 Apart from that, um, I'm working on automating the stupidest thing at the moment. It, it's going to be, I think, the stupidest thing that I've ever automated. And I think I'm going to have fun with the video for, for oh, this cool. cool. I have to automate pressing a button. Um, That's it. Okay. It I've just, got the solution for you. One of those... Uh, uh, piggy banks where you put the coin mm. on it and then the cat comes and then up. the little cat comes out yeah, yeah that exactly that's exactly it it better be so, that cute aaron that's not it making it cute's not a bad idea actually yeah um so yeah as i've said before my neighbor at the workshop lives in his unit mm -hmm. and his bed is like right next to where my compressor and cnc mill are nice um i, I really want to start running the CNC mill overnight though, because yeah. even if I only do that twice a week, that's an extra, you know, eight cycles a month. And that in terms of like finished knives, that's, you know, quite a chunk of, of cash right there. Mm -hmm. So, um, and previously what's been stopping me is that, you know, when the CNC mill finishes a cycle, it, it's quiet. It doesn't make any noise, but I would have to leave the compressor on and then the compressor would be kicking on randomly throughout the night and keeping my neighbor up. Right. Right. So, Basically, you, with a screw compressor, you can't just turn the power off to it. Like, I can't just put a timer on the power cord. A, it's 600 volt three phase, so it'd <laughs> yeah. be a hell of a timer. And B, um, if it's in the middle of a, a cycle of running the compressor, it actually has to do like cool down stuff. Like, sure. it has to run unloaded. You don't want it just r randomly shutting off. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, you know, no bueno for the, for the compressor. Um, 
so I literally have to make a device that will press the off button on my compressor every night at 11 p.m. Okay. That's a fun project. <laughs> I think, uh, right. Have you seen the beginning of um, Back to the Future? Uh, he like, has the automated time. system. The alarm clock sets off this thing that like fills his dog's bowl. Right. Yes. Yeah. Very like, um, uh, it's going to be a contraption. Yes. That's what it's going to be. Yeah. yeah. No, but are you, it, it, how simple can you make something like that? Or is it, is it one of those things that seems simple, but is complicated? It's one of those things that seems simple and it's a little complicated. Right. Yeah. Because, um, you know, so I could just use a mechanical timer. Right. But those mechanical timers will like turn something on for a minimum of half an hour. You know, if you have, so I don't know if you've seen them, but they have like a, a circle. Yes. And at every part of the circle, you know, they just have like a little peg. Yeah. Right. And each one of those is like a half an hour block of time. Yeah. I guess I could use like Christmas lights on and off. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I could use like a digital timer and then set the on time to like a minute. But you know, if I have little a little actuator like a, a hobby servo, or um, the other thing I was thinking about using is the actuator out of a out of the power locking in a car. Oh, interesting. Because um, you can buy those pretty cheaply; they're like fourteen bucks for a packet of two, huh. um, and they're actually pretty powerful little actuators. They can push and pull with about ten pounds worth of force. Wow! Um, and they're designed to be kind of yanked, you know, because it's connected to the little knob in your car that goes up and down. So when you move that knob, it, it moves the actuator. Okay. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a tough mechanism. Um, but I'm pretty sure if you ran one of those, you know, hard against a button or a surface where it can't move anymore for a minute, you're probably going to do some damage to the actuator or burn it out. Right. Right. So really you just want to like turn it on for five seconds and then turn it off. So, you know, it's press the button. So, yeah, I don't know. And again, I'm trying not to overcomplicate it. You know, like, I want to make it nice. But, like, making stuff too nice is just as bad as not making it nice enough. Hmm. Could it be something you just remotely turn on? So it's not timed, but you you have to actually do it? Yes. But I don't want to do that. Right. That's dumb. How about your neighbor? You're dumb for suggesting. Give the button to your neighbor. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Give him a little off switch. Or just just turn this off whenever it bugs you. Headphones or earplugs under the door. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a frustrating situation because, like, if if this was my own shop on my own land, I would I would run my machines like 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, Has he complained about it, or are you just being a nice guy? I'm partially being a nice guy and I left it running a couple of nights just to test it, you know, and I was like, Oh, I had to sleep last night. And he was like, Oh, not good, man. It kind of kept me up, you know? So yeah, you know, like the guy's living in an industrial building and I recognize that, you know, he doesn't get to complain about noise during, you know, reasonable hours, but like, I don't want to ruin the guy's life. No, you don't want to send him, make him mad. Yeah. I told one of my, one of my friends that he was, uh, maybe, less understanding he was like fuck that guy right run run the mills all, all night it's tempting know? to think that way but it, yeah if, i just if you're the actual one who has to deal with this person yes exactly plus if someone was doing that to me i would you know i'd hate them so yes. like i don't want to be that guy um we have our com- compressor i never even thought about this but we have a neighboring unit mm. and they're only here during the day but our compressor is right up against basically right up against the wall that we share with them Right. And uh, 
just um i was just talking to one of the guys that works there like maybe a few months ago and uh he was like never he was like i never have asked you but what is that awful noise that <laughs> is uh that goes off like every five minutes that shakes our walls and like knocks things over and i was like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it's that bad it's the piston compressor like it's yeah. shaking the wall and like right. they've got stuff hanging on there and like it's i guess they're just having a mini earthquake <laughs> in their unit right yeah, yeah and i mean so the sh- the shop before last that i was in was again in an industrial building but we're in a city and so a lot of these industrial buildings are getting you know units are getting leased by companies that are using them as office space mm-hmm. or, or whatever um and yeah, I got called up by my landlord and he was like, hey man, I've got to talk to you about this noise situation. I was like, what noise situation? I've been here for like five years and there's never been a problem. And he's like, oh, the upstairs neighbors are telling me, you know, that there's a lot of noise. And so I was like, okay. So I go up there with the landlord and I left the machines running and everything so I could hear it. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty noisy up here. Why haven't you guys ever come and told me that it's noisy? You know, like... There's like literally holes going. Oh, yeah. So the, the uh, you know, this building's an old school uh, factory and the floor on the second level is actually two by fours um, on end. The whole whole floor is just solid two by fours. That's wild. So it's like a four inch thick wooden floor. It's crazy. But there were literally holes that had been drilled through from, from the second floor to the first floor that had never been sealed. You know, so like, of course they can hear me. Like they could probably see you too. Yes, 100%. You know, so like if if any minimal effort had been made on their part to actually solve this situation, we could have made it substantially better. But, you know, yeah, this is one of the things that people who are like starting a business, uh, you know, making things, you, you don't really think that like getting a workshop where you can make noise oh, yeah. is, is going to be a problem potentially. We yeah. did think about that, but not for the same reason. We don't actually, I didn't ever thought about the, how noisy the machinery would be. I mm. thought somebody would complain about the loud guitar playing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so right. we had it right them right into our lease that they couldn't complain about us playing the guitar loud. Right. But never even thought about the machinery. How dumb is that? Well, yeah. And but my current they, unit... they have a wood shop as well. So right, I, I guess that's why maybe it didn't cross our minds, but yeah, I mean, in our current, in my current unit, um, I literally said to the the manager of the building, I was like, I'm going to make a lot of noise in here. <laughs> you know, is that going to be an issue? And one of the reasons I like this building is because she's like, no, absolutely not. Like, we're not going to give you any problems for making noise because this is the noisy end of the building. Oh, the other smart. end of the building yeah. is where we put our quiet tenants. Right. Here, she was like. Go crazy! Also, like, and I, I, you know, I told them I'm going to be making 90 decibels of, uh, of noise, 24 hours a day, and they're like, "That's totally fine. Go for it." Nice. Um, also, like that whole building is just concrete rooms, isn't it? Except between me and my neighbor. Oh, like, right. I can hear him having like a, a telephone conversation. Oh, yeah. So, so you're eavesdropping? Oh, 100. Mm-hmm. percent All the time. So nosy. Uh, well, oh. that's an interesting problem. Uh, I'll be keen to see the solution. Uh, to right. turn off the compressor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's going to be a fun little, fun little project. I think I'm going to entitle the video like, I spent $100 in three days to press a button. Right. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. pretty much what it's going to be, you know, like, but it'll be worth it in the, the productivity that I gained from it. So, 
It better be a big machine. I want it to be huge. <laughs> Way bigger than this. How about a um, robot that's parked like <laughs> as far away from it as possible with a clear trajectory right to the machine and it's holding like a broomstick and then to drive over there. Yeah, it just it just drives a straight line and you've timed it out. So at eleven o'clock it just runs into the button and then backs up. Perfect. Perfect. You um are you in charge of uh the problem solving yeah, in the company? I'm the R and D guy. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> um so we've got a, an awesome question from a listener if you wanted to have a look at that yes um i will read it out so baltic blades on instagram asked what should i look for in a cnc router for Mercator knife scales spindle power other technical technical parameters is it possible to get a router for this job for under a thousand euros he's saying he's going to machine scales for his knives from big sheets of Mercator, so probably 12 inches by 12 inches what is Mercator? Um, uh it's phenolic okay um, but generally in the knife industry, when they say Mercado, they mean like, uh, linen phenolic or canvas phenolic. Mm. So, you know, for people that aren't familiar, it's like, a linen fabric or a canvas fabric, um, lots and lots of layers of it with a phenolic resin as a binder. And then it's all compressed and turned into a, a composite sheet. Um, and yeah, this is honestly, this is a really interesting question because, I think a lot of people are in this same kind of situation. They want to get a CNC machine into their shops to automate repetitive stuff, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of cheap junk out there. And then the stuff that's better than cheap junk is often too expensive. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't know how, how much of this kind of stuff have you looked at? Not a lot. Um, I, I'm interested in, in terms of less expensive equipment, super interested in laser lasers mm. and uh 3d printers but as far as yeah a router goes you guys have a nice one so you well, haven't really thought about looking at others i just i've never looked at that price point that's quite quite a low price point yeah so it works out to about 1500 canadian dollars which would be like i guess like 1200 us dollars um guarantee there's something out there <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so there's a ton of like Chinese stuff out there for for this price range, or even less. Like, you can get a, a little tiny CNC router for like 400 bucks on mm -hmm. Amazon, which is crazy. Um, and those machines generally have for a spindle, they have like a DC motor right. with um, like a little tiny ER collet clamped onto the end of the motor shaft. Okay, right. So, the, like from a spindle perspective, not great. Um, They'll generally have lead screws instead of ball screws. So lead screws are good because they're very simple. There's not many, there's no real like moving parts in them other than the screw and the nut. So like getting dust in them or whatever isn't a big deal, but you're not going to get like lots of speed out of a lead screw. Mm -hmm. um, and then for the controllers, they generally use gerbil, garble, uh, however you pronounce it, which is a system that like runs on an Arduino. And then you need like a separate computer to like drip feed it G code. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, they're very simple kind of rudimentary, um, but you know, like uh, Craig, the the previous host of the show, he bought one off Amazon that was 30 centimeters by 18 centimeters, I believe, or 40 centimeters, maybe the work area. And he was expecting it to be like a total piece of shit. And he uses it like every day. Now. 
um, and hasn't really had any issues with it at all. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So it is kind of surprising what you can get. That that price range though, the like twelve hundred US dollars, is a very kind of awkward spot because mm. um, there's stuff that's less expensive and there's stuff that's more expensive but i haven't seen too much right around that price um i mean what so so okay if i did a quick search google search of cnc routers a mm-hmm. bunch of stuff comes up what should somebody be looking for uh in a a, a cnc router of this price point around this price point what would be good you said lead screws would actually maybe be better than ball screws yeah i mean ball screws ball are screws great be a red flag be like how the fuck do they get ball screws this cheap <laughs> um, um it's a good question i'm not 100 percent sure actually do you want to look for something that's got like a dewalt router in it mm. um, yeah so i would say like in terms of spindles the the ones that look like a little motor with an er collet kind of clamped onto the bottom they're like bottom of the barrel you know they they advertise them as like 200 watt spindle 400 watt spindle those things are not great then one step up from that would be yeah like a dewalt router or um, a makita router um uh, you know often if you're buying a machine that takes a dewalt router or or like you know a trim router of any kind the router won't actually be included with the machine right so that's more money you have to spend but you could probably um, find one of those used yeah but I mean, they're not that expensive, right? You know, you'd be looking Home at like Depot 150 bucks or whatever yeah. the equivalent of is in the UK. Yeah. And I've run a machine that used a router as a spindle and it was great. It worked very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the step up from that would be a proper like CNC uh, 60 millimeter or 80 millimeter spindle, um, either air cooled or water cooled with a variable frequency drive. Um, and those are like startlingly cheap. Huh. Um, if you buy them from China, like you can get a water cooled 2.2 kilowatt 80 millimeter spindle for like $110 US. Okay. Which is crazy. And that, that'll have like an ER20 collet um, on it. So you can, you know, use a lot of different sizes of collets. One of the disadvantages of using a router as the spindle is that you really only get quarter inch collets and maybe one eighth inch collets. Right. If you're lucky. Oftentimes you'll just have quarter inch collets and that's it yeah Yeah. um a really good point having er collets would be it's yeah it's nice because then you can use drills or whatever you want whatever tooling size you want you can use also probably less run out i imagine i mean like a collet and a router like a handheld router trim they're not bad they're not bad it's just like a three point collet right yes yeah they're not bad but they're definitely not the best either um and then, yeah, apart from that, I mean, if you were looking at really inexpensive machines, then Gerbil or Gobble or whatever it's called is basically going to be the status quo. That's going to be what you, what you get. And those are fine, but you have to bank on the cost of an additional like PC to run the machine as well. Um, and it doesn't have to be a high-spec PC. It can just be like an old desktop of some kind. You just buy it used. But you have to factor the cost of that into it as well. Um, now, but then above Gobble, Gerbil. I think Gerbil was a Nazi. <laughs> um, uh, it must be something else. Garb? Yeah, Garbel? I, I don't know. It's just spelled G-R-B-L. G-R-B-L. And I've never heard anyone pronounce it. So I think that's Garbel. Garbel? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, above that, you've got like Mac 3, Linux CNC. Um, 
out of those two, you're only going to see Mac 3 on cheap machines when it's like a pirated copy. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's a difficult price bracket to look at. Um, is there anything that you know of that's uh, plug and play? Like, what's, I, I keep hearing Shape Oco. Is that, what, what is, mm. what's the price point on something like that? Uh, let me double check. I haven't looked at the Shape Oco in a while. Um, Shape Oco. Yeah, there are a couple of little machines that, that usually the, the problem is that you can have like a big machine that's good and it's expensive, or you can have a, a small machine that's good and inexpensive, but then it's too small. Right. You know, but the nice um, scales aren't big, right? No, but he wants to machine them out of sheets. Oh, right. True. Right. Um, well, the uh, Shape Oco has a thing called uh, Nomad, twenty eight hundred bucks. Yes, that's the really little one. It is little. Hmm. Um, and then the step up from that is the actual Shape Oco. Uh, what? Three. So let's have a look. I mean, that's pretty yeah. cheap. So that's about thirteen hundred dollars, and that uses a Dewalt router or one of their routers as the um, as the spindle. Yeah. yeah, I mean, wow. that might be a good option. I mean, I, I've heard good things about this. Uh, nothing specific, but I know it's, right. it's kind of a name brand, right? Yes, that's true. And one of the good things about going with a name brand like this is that, you know, there's lots of people on the net that have the same machine that know how to fix it, know how to tweak it. Um, this thing looks and fun deadly simple, too. Yes. The one disadvantage I would say to these machines, you know, I, I haven't run one, right? So I don't know how much of a disadvantage it is. But rather than using ball screws or lead screws, it actually uses timing belts as the motion system. Oh. That's a big part of how they keep the cost so far down. Right. Right. Okay. Um, but that means that the timing belt is going to have a bit of stretch. Yes. You know, so I see. Okay. Making a fast reversal, like going from one direction to the other, there's going to be like a bit of a spring action there. Mm. Um, but you're right. Like honestly, something like the Shape Poco might be potentially the best option just, in this price range. I mean, run it uh, kind of modestly. Yeah, yeah. I I like the fact that it has um, like a trim router as a spindle rather than one of those crappy little motors with an ER collet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's from a company that's going to give you like actual product support rather than just being like a no name Chinese router on Amazon. Um, and because tons of other people are using it, there's going to be lots of information on how to tweak it, how to tune it, how to fix it, how to, you know, whatever. Oh, Cause yeah. you're going to have to do some amount of that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I honestly, good, good suggestion, Nick. I think cool. that might be. And there might be other brands that make a similar product too, that you could look into. So you can do some cost yes. comparisons or, or, um, uh, you know, uh, see what. Uh, certain uh, strengths one has over another. Man, that took yes. me a long time to get out. Fine. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I mean, good on you for remembering the Shape Oko. I have not run one personally. I've heard a lot about them. Um, you know, it's probably not my choice. I'd be trying to probably put some more money aside and get a a bit more of a, a stiffer machine that has lead screws or ball screws. Mm. But um, certainly lots of people are using these machines. 
uh, and they're still in business, which, you know, they can't be getting like 10,000 one star reviews and still be in business. You know, <laughs> like, I think with this, clearly sort of people thing, are liking you it. have to know what you're getting and, yes. and, and yeah. have to. I mean, but it's funny because if you go to their website, their slogan is rigid, accurate, and reliable. I mean, that's great. Yeah. That's what you want. I mean, that's. That's, yeah, that's what they're purporting. I honestly, I think that's a pretty, pretty reasonable um, choice. Um, and I, honestly, like I can totally think of uses that I would have for a machine like that. Right. You know, like something like um, cutting my Kydex sheaths, for instance. Yeah. You know, I only need one tool. It doesn't have to be super fast, but it would be really nice to never have to like tear down a setup on my CNC mill to do the setup for my sheaths. Yeah. Um, or if you're like cutting foam or something like that yeah exactly for boxes so yeah i i think that's a great suggestion nick i think the shape um that might be in the sweet spot for for that kind of price range mm -hmm. a machine like that um and above that so like my friend mike just wanted to buy uh, a cnc mill sorry cnc router and i wanted to steer him to something that he would you know grow into uh, instead of growing out of, and he wanted to get something a bit more serious after having run, because he's actually run my CNC mills, right? right? So he, he's been a bit spoiled by that experience. Um, and he ended up, I, I'm not sure whether he's made the purchase yet, but he was going to make the purchase of a machine from Probotics, which is a, an American company. Um, and they, you know, it's all aluminum construction with ball screws, um, big NEMA 23 stepper motors, um, a proper Linux CNC based controller. Um, and then like the water cooled spindle and mm -hmm. automatic tool touch off and all that kind of stuff. Oh right? yeah. Those like, look cool. Yeah. And they're more like $4,500 okay. US or five grand US. Yeah. but So that, it's a pretty big step. Tool changing you know, like, is an option, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, the, the tool changer. I don't know if you looked at the price for the tool changer. The price for the tool changer is like more than the price of the rest of the machine. Oh, no. And unfortunately, that's because tool changing spindles are like crazy expensive. Right. Like it's it's really difficult to get one gotcha. that's like, you know, an $800 spindle. You're spending like two and a half grand just on the spindle right. at that point, right? So Okay, so you're hand loading tools. That's no problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, this looks cool. Yeah, so I mean, I think... The sweet spot really depends on what your budget is and what you're going to do with it. And in this case, Baltic Blades says that he's, you know, probably going to be making like a batch of 50 knives over the next, I don't know, a couple of months or something. So at that at that point, like having the machine run, even if it's slowly, you know, while you're doing other stuff is a labor saving measure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and the nice thing too about a machine like the Shapeogo with the belts and everything so simple mm -hmm. you know if something goes wrong you're going to be able to fix it yeah it's not going to be expensive to fix um so yeah i i think that's a good nice to have something that's a little bit plug and play too so you're you you can gain a little confidence just get it up and running yes um and it sounds i think that these machines come as a kit and you have to assemble it that makes sense i believe but you know i'm quite sure that they have good instructions yeah you know um, probably just like so. i see ikea furniture mm -hmm. i'm always impressed by ikea furniture yeah great suggestion nick i think i think for that price the shape might be the the sweet spot 
if any of the listeners have another suggestion, you know, because many eyes will make this a lot better, you know, around that price range, what would what would you guys recommend? Around twelve hundred dollars US, like what would be your go to machine? I'll be very curious to see what people say. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that was that was it for questions for for this week. Nobody's got uh, guitar questions. No, I mean knife people. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Knives are cool. Well, I think honestly, I think a big part of the reason for that is that like the um you can get into knife making a lot more easily than you can get into guitar building. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Well, having seen the process for both, I think yes, it's the answer. <laughs> Um, while you got into knife, well, I guess you used to make guitars, work for a guitar company. Used to work for a guitar company. Yeah. That, I mean, they were very high tech, five axis CNC routers and that kind of stuff. And then, um, then you made pens. When I mm-hmm. first met you, you were making pens. Do people know that? Uh, probably not. No, I mean, I haven't sold one in a long time. <laughs> I've still got a couple of them. Aaron made and- aluminum pens. They were really cool. And then they were a lot of fun. Now, Tim and I joke that uh, the pen is not mightier than the sword. <laughs> than the knife. Yeah. Because knife yeah. beat pen. Yeah, seriously. Well, and I mean, I've spent a lot of time around our friend Jeremy, who um, built guitars by hand. Um, so I've, I've seen you know, a lot of the process for making a guitar by hand. And there's, there's a lot of handwork and a lot of tools needed for that. A lot of steps, hundreds, hundreds yes. of steps. Yes, but so knives are definitely simpler than guitars. I can, I can say that with confidence. It's uh, an, an ancient uh, art form, the knife. <laughs> <laughs> well, guitars too. Did you get any mean comments this Nick this week, Nick? People were pretty nice to me. Yeah, no, I don't think I got any mean comments. I got one, and I'm not sure if it classifies as mean, It's, but it's this eternal debate, and I'm sure you hear, hear this too, of like people that say that if you use a CNC machine that there's no craftsmanship. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I get this yeah. too, so yeah. that's good. That relates. So, yeah, someone said, how is a custom handmade knife done with a CNC? I'm not sure if that's a question. There was no question mark on there. <laughs> uh this is what knife making is coming to. No disrespect to you, but anyone who can program a CNC can be a knife maker. This is not knife making. Man, when you have tight. rough hands and they are tough from using your hands, an hour spent in front of a yeah, that's that, that bit's uh, not comprehensible. Then you can call yourself a knife maker. Sorry, sir, but this is not knife making. Your knives are mid text, nothing more. Not trying to slander you, but this is the downfall of true handmade knives. And he's a knife maker. Yes, he is. Um, and yeah, I thought this was really interesting. Like I, I responded to him with a couple of points saying like, one, I don't think that, so I think that there are more knife makers now than there were 20 years ago, even though CNC machines are more common now. And I think that most of those knife makers are still making knives by hand. Right. You know, um, and like I've been lucky enough to personally help a lot of knife makers get into knife making. You know, so I really don't think that CNC machines are the downfall of any handmade industry. Like, I think it will become, you know, like guitars were made by hand when they had to be made by hand. Yes. And even still, they they were like, how do we make this faster and easier? 
Yeah, so you get 10,000 people and you have them each do one step. And, yeah, or you know, a copy the, carver. The right. And then you've just got a factory full of meat meat machines. Yeah. Rather than CNC machines. Um, yeah, and like, I don't think that automating things ever takes value away from the same things being made by hand. You know, there will always be people that want a guitar or a knife that's totally made by hand and they will pay a premium for it. Yes. You know? Um, because really like making stuff by hand is super expensive. Oh um, yeah. I mean, if time is money, right. And if it's going to yeah. take you one month to make one knife, yeah, you're going to have to charge a boatload of money for it or you're never going to have a viable business. Yeah, 100%. And the other part is too, like, so in this case, he's conflating custom and handmade. And those two things aren't, he's saying like, how is a custom knife made with CNC? Like those two things don't have any bearing on each other. Right. Same as with a custom guitar. You know, if someone's calling you up and they're saying, I want this guitar in this color with these pickups and this scale length and, you know, whatever they want to say, that's a custom guitar. It doesn't matter how you make it. You're making it for them custom, you know? Same with knives. So I also challenge anybody to actually make something exclusively with a C, like a CNC. That's that's not just like a, a widget or a, a part, a single part. Like, yes, how do you make yeah. a an object that ha, uh, is an assembly of many parts without handwork? Impossible. I mean, yes, and without craftsmanship. Yeah, right. Like, even if it was all CNC, and then you had robots assemble it or something. The craftsmanship involved in getting that process working and working right is insane. Mm -hmm. And like the learning curve involved in putting together a process like that is mind blowing. Like the, the people that design like automotive automotive production lines, for instance. Oh yeah. Like oh my wildly God. complicated. Like, yeah. It'd be so, easier to make the car by hand. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like Yeah, and I think a lot of the people that make these kind of comments, they don't understand the skill that goes into programming like designing a part in CAD you know designing the fixtures programming it running the machine holding your tolerances um, you know all of the stuff that sounds easy oh you just put it in a machine press a button you know? right this is a this is a person who's scared that a machine's coming for his or her job right well yeah and it has never run one of those machines themselves so yeah. they don't understand how complicated it is so yeah i i just i think it's a really interesting uh kind of dichotomy like the people that have run a machine know how complicated it is will compliment other people on like holy crap that's a nice surface finish like what programming tricks and what mm -hmm. tooling tricks did you have to use to get that you know um versus people that just see a computerized machine and they're like well, there's no skill in that. You just press a button. Yeah. I um, mean, I'd like to say to this guy, we're not so different. We no. we put our dungarees on one leg at a time. We've all got we get our hands, hands dirty. Yeah. <laughs> we just also have cool machines. Yeah. Robots. Robots. Yeah. So yeah, I just I think it's interesting. I I um Honestly, the only real complaint that I have out of this is that someone would go and chirp another person for doing things their way. Right, exactly. You know, and I, I think that, I don't know, I, I, like, I, I just want the community of 
makers of machinists of whatever you want to call yourself you know we all have to stick together and support each other this is a we're all choosing to do hard stuff right for whatever reason you know we're choosing to do hard stuff you know so supporting each other in that i think it's important. i think it's funny though this person is a knife maker <laughs> just <laughs> and like use their knife maker uh account to comment on it it's almost like an advertisement for handmade knives <laughs> anybody who's watching mm-hmm. this video yeah, seeing like, you make oh, a I knife with a CNC and is offended is going to see this guy's comment and go, this is my guy. Perfect. I'm going to go and like his comment. That's fine. Yeah, you, you go for it. <laughs> That's all I got for this week. No, nothing too mean. That's pretty good. Pr- yeah. Pretty mean. I didn't, I didn't cry this week. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> Poor Aaron. Um, Dry your eyes. Seriously. Well, what are you up to for the rest of this week, mate? Rest of this week, um, uh, I, I just started like a bunch of guitars. Mm. Um, That's exciting. Yeah, we I made it a little easy on myself the last month. We're trying to work month to month, and I pushed ahead some like arcade model guitars because they're just a right. little simpler to make. Um, right. But now I'm I have a bunch of signature and ultralight models which are are more challenging guitars to make i kind of like to batch them together anyways because that i I get into that's a good workflow uh rhythm with but these this is no so i've i've got a complicated uh month of production this month but it's exciting we've got some really cool custom orders going on right now and like yeah whenever you guys post something to your instagram i'm always so two things i'm always blown away by how good your work is and i'm always you. blown away that you will take a fully finished buffed guitar and put it on the <laughs> outfeed table of your joint yeah <laughs> like on a cast iron table you'll just balance it there and then take a photo yeah i don't know how you do that without scratching them every time um i mean cast iron's very smooth and uh <laughs> the finish is harder than you, than people think yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I just, and, I don't know. It makes me nervous. No, I know. It, it makes me nervous too. Um, but uh, it looks badass. It does. That's true. Sometimes, okay, this isn't mean, an actual mean comment, but sometimes people will be like, instead of commenting on and be like, wow, beautiful guitar, they'll be like, cool jointer. I'm like, damn. <laughs> well, the guitar. to be fair, you do have some cool machines. It's a, it's like a cool your. Your planer is the most terrifying woodworking tool I've ever heard. The, the planer or the jointer? The planer. Oh, okay. We, uh... So Nick's, Nick's planer, when it starts up, so the cutter head has, I think it's three blades in it, right? Yes. Or four. And, you know, the, the shape of this, so this it's, it's like a cast iron or steel drum that's like, what, six inches in diameter and 24 inches long? Yeah, it's hefty. Yeah, it's probably And it's getting spun long. up to like... 3000 rpm or something? that i don't know um but you know it's this big chunk of steel with these terrifying blades in it getting spun up to a really high speed and the holes and stuff in the the bolts or whatever all kind of combine to make it sound like an air raid siren oh yeah yeah like yeah. it has this utterly terrifying <laughs> sound to it um i think it's the scariest machine i've ever seen <laughs> it's like a big wood chipper kind of that's just us saying like put your hands in here yeah yeah uh we actually don't have that machine anymore oh wow okay what happened to it we didn't use it that much 
um, hmm. because we're surfacing wood on the jointer and then putting it right on the CNC. So we don't have a need for that right. uh, that type of planing. Uh, so we still, if we need to plane something, we do abrasive planing in the thickness sander. So right. we just we created a little, we replaced it with the thickness sander, which is just way more useful that for makes, us. Makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and it's also way less terrifying. It is less terrifying. <laughs> Gets slowly sanded to death rather than quickly mulched. <laughs> I should have um, called in that favor uh, in where you know because I held on to your uh, <laughs> you want me to engine hold on to the for you. Yes, yeah. you, you guys stored my engine hoist for two years, so you <laughs> want me to hold on to the planer for you. Yeah, my one-ton planer. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you that I'll do it, but I'll just put it in the parking lot. Yeah, with a rest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what are you up to this week? Um, Kind of the same as you, actually. I'm working on all of the kind of weird uh, orders that have come through in the last little while. So I'm doing all of the the really custom stuff. So the, the first uh, kind of few... Um, fully custom handle color combinations yeah um, sick yeah so that's going well so far anything and wild also, like uh olive drab and blaze orange oh it's really cool yeah i like that and then one very subtle one which is a desert tan and with smoke gray liners so cool. two very like subtle colors yeah, yeah. next to each other i think it looks cool um and then I've got one project that I've been, I've literally been working on this knife for this guy for like close to six months now. Um, and it doesn't even sound that complicated. I'm just trying to do glow in the dark liners okay. for this guy. But I want to do like really, really bright, super high quality glow in the dark liners. Um, so basically I'm, I'm doing a poured epoxy liner that's like full. It's like basically all glow in the dark. Oh, powder. so you're you're making the glow in the dark material yourself, essentially. Yeah, yeah. That's wicked. Um and so by having and I'm using like the largest particle size that I can get away with because with this high performance glow in the dark powder, the larger the particle size, the longer and brighter it glows. Wicked. Um Whoa, that so is I'm using, wicked. I want to yeah, know more I'm about this because I have I want to steal this idea from you for something. Oh yeah, totally man. I've even got a bunch of extra powder and stuff that you can have if you want. Okay. Um, and it, you just mix it yeah. with a, a, just a regular two-part epoxy? I'm uh, Yeah, I'm mixing it with um, like a deep pour casting epoxy. Right. So this stuff takes like four days to cure. Right. Um, and But it releases bubbles very easily yeah. and so on. Um, yeah, and it's just been a total pain in the ass to get right because I wanted to use really coarse... Um, glow in the dark powder, so I was using like 500 micron stuff, but then when I was machining it, the individual grains were tearing out of the uh, epoxy and leaving like holes. Right. Um, so then I thought, okay, and the other problem is that it it settles, the glow powder settles in the epoxy because it takes so long to cure. Right. So you have to like really fill it. It has to be like almost 100% glow powder, wow. otherwise you just end up with like a layer of glow powder at the bottom, and then the rest of it's epoxy. Um, yeah, so it's been a bit of a pain in the ass, but I finally got one the other day that looks right. Sick. It the the pour went really well; it looked great. And then I machined it, and I totally screwed it up. Uh, I like, no. put it in the wrong place. No, yeah, it had it. Had, I didn't realize it had like a little bit of glue sticking out, and so I thought I'd pushed it into the CNC machine in my fixture against the stop, but the little bit of glue sticking out was actually caught up on a clamp, and I didn't realize. Oh, fuck. And then I just machined it in like a totally nonsensical place, so it has like half a glow in the dark line. So does um, did it machine well though? 
Yeah, it looks really okay. good. So proof of concept at least. Yes. Yeah. Good, good. So, and the other problem is just like, I actually can't use the glow in the dark powder by itself because the glow powder isn't a nice color. It's like kind of a pale, sickly green. Um, and I want it to look more like one of my normal handle scale colors. So I'm actually mixing like a pigment oh. with the epoxy and then doing the glow powder and stuff. So. Right. Like, cause so when it's not glowing in the dark, I'm sure when it glows, it would look bright green. Yes. But when it's exactly when it's not glowing, it, it looks pale. It just looks like crap. Yeah, because yeah. sometimes that stuff does look kind of like beige or something. Yes, that's exactly yeah. what it looks like. So, yeah, I had to like mix different dyes and pigments to get the daylight color right, right. and then Damn. work out how to get the right kind of powder in the right amount to get the nighttime color right. Wow, that is really cool. Yeah, but it's taken like six months because like every time I'm like, oh, God, I need like a different powder or something, I have to like order the stuff, and then it takes like three weeks to show up are there materials to... that you could have used just like a glow in the dark sheet yeah there's some glow in the dark like acrylic mm -hmm. um but it all uses very fine particles which means that the glow is never going to be as powerful as if you were using the larger glow particles ah okay um and when i say like it, it's dramatically different um so i actually made a pore that had both a really fine uh, 15 micron powder in it and a really coarse 500 micron powder. Mm -hmm. And after about eight hours, you can't see the 15 micron powder at all. Like it just looks black, but you can still very clearly see the um, 500 micron powder. Sorry, after how long? After like eight hours. Wow. Eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. This stuff, like if you're in like a dark tent in the middle of, you know, the, the woods and there's like no other light and you charged it up or you had the knife with you in sunlight before bedtime, you would totally see it all the way through to the next morning. Oh, that is sick. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm very yeah. interested in this because we are building a guitar for a, um, like a touring musician who wants mm. side dots that are glow in the dark so that when he's oh, on stage, okay. um, he can, he can see it. Uh, okay, and there's cool. a, there's something you can buy for it and he's, he's sort of, told us let's use this stuff but before he right. goes on stage he's taking a flashlight and charging them basically right, um right. and i don't know if he's repeatedly doing repeatedly doing that I, i'm curious to know now how long that stuff will last yeah well I, I can give you some samples i've got a bunch of that stuff so yeah cool no problem cool man well yeah We'll uh, have to touch base on that off the show. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I, uh, I hope everyone has a good week. And yeah, please let us know if you have any questions. And please also let us know if you have any suggestions for Baltic Blades about um, you know CNC routers in the $1,200 US price range. Um, I'm very interested to hear what the other options are aside from the Shapeoko. Right on. Yeah, man. So I hope everyone has a good week. Hope you have a good week, Nick. You too. And I will see everyone next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.